great podcast for you. Daryl Johnson, Cowboys, talking this Super Bowl in his Super Bowl run with Dallas back in the day. I want to touch on the Stafford and Goff trade and really what I think is the biggest headline from that. We'll do a little NBA recap, including an insane Nets and Wizards game uh, from the weekend. And of course, as always, life advice at the end. This episode is presented to you by Lululemon. The perfect pants do exist, and you can get them at Lululemon. The men's ABC pants are shockingly comfortable and breathable, and they come in tons of different styles and fabrics, all made to make you look and feel good. Whether you're in the office, at the gym, cheering in the stands, or just relaxing at home, these pants are in a league of their own. Buy a pair today at lululemon.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card, subject to credit approval, savings available to Apple Card owners, subject to eligibility, savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC, terms apply. I want to start today's podcast talking Goff and Stafford because there's a bunch of different headlines that we can get to. And I'm not saying necessarily any of them are wrong, but the one that I think is the most interesting is that the Rams had Goff and they wanted to get rid of him. Okay, that's the important thing here. And that should scare you as a Lions fan. Let's go back and look at the timeline and all the moving pieces of this. When Goff was first drafted, whether the equity to go up and trade him and it felt like the Rams, because there was all the stuff that was going on. The Rams felt like with the move, they needed somebody to put on some banners around the town, even though, you know, L.A. doesn't really work that way. They had kind of a, a franchise guy before he even knew whether or not he could play to kind of sell the idea on the Rams transitioning out to Los Angeles. That was definitely part of the evaluation. Then, of course, after the fact, there was all these things like, oh, Fisher actually really wanted Wentz. And then guess what? Like Goff puts together a really nice part of his career once Fisher was gone and it was McVay. So I remember talking about Goff after his first preseason game with McVay where I think there was a turnover in a short field and they got a touchdown and they yanked Goff out of there. And I was like, uh-oh. Like that, and I was wrong about this, but I thought at that time that's one of those deals where they're worried about a player's psyche and a young quarterback coming off that first rough year. So what they were going to do was let him feel good about himself for a week walking around the facility getting ready for the next preseason game. I even talked about it where I was like, I'm worried he could end up being a bust. He'll, he looks like a bust so far. And then that there was a video that I had said this, and then it got edited and shared all over the place where I was saying he's definitively a bust. And then, of course, when he's like a borderline MVP candidate one of those years and puts together two great statistical seasons, it looks like a total whiff. But again, people edit. So anyway, that Super Bowl run, the numbers are incredible. And the other side of that was, you know, with people around New England and the Patriots, and, and obviously that's the franchise that I'm closer to. It's not like I'm talking to anyone in the front office there, but there was just a vibe around that team going up to that Super Bowl when I was down there for it was I had never seen the Patriots contingency be more confident. Whether it was guys that used to play there, um, people that covered the team, I'd be like, hey, what's where's this team's head at? And they were like, this thing, they're like, they're so not afraid of golf in this offense. And that's exactly what happened. Now, we could go back and look at some specific drops in that game and say, well, what if, what if, what if? I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but at no point did I ever really feel like, even though there was a close couple 50-50 plays where we could talk ourselves into a different outcome, it didn't feel like in the moment watching that game that there was another outcome other than New England winning. Okay? Now, after that, they pay Goff all of this money. Four years, $134 million. And remember what the Rams said. And the Rams have no problem trading draft picks, which we'll get to, and they have no problem spending a ton of money on guys. And one of the 
the reasonings uh, that they went ahead and paid Goff is they said they loved the way he carried himself and spoke after a Super Bowl loss. You're like, all right, that's weird. Now, let's not kid ourselves. There's a going rate for being a starting quarterback. There's a going rate, especially when you spend that much draft capital to go ahead and draft a guy number one overall, right? So we know that there's all of these things that you're doing um, to justify spending this much money because basically if you're a starting quarterback, you're going to be making 20-plus million anyway if you're signed somewhere. So then as things keep moving on, you go, all right, like what? how good is Goff? And I would watch certain things. And remember two years ago when the offensive line wasn't as crisp, they lost Cooper Cup, and and things just look like it's way more challenging. And I'm like, is this who is this guy? Because I'm still convinced we are in an era, and it's not even a theory, it's fact. We are in an era where we're seeing so much production in different areas of not just football, but basketball with pitchers and baseball, where you're like, okay, so these numbers are historically insane, but is it insane in comparison to how the game is being played right now. And golf can put up these big gaudy numbers, but a lot of quarterbacks can do this. So if you don't believe me, how about Trent Dilfer who comes on with us all the time? And I'll, I'm really interested in like, okay, what do you see that the rest of us can't see? You know, not that we don't see, but we don't even understand it because we've never played the position. What do you see? And he'll talk about handholding for different quarterbacks and other quarterbacks that can do whatever. And you can use them in all these different ways and they can adapt to any kind of offense where there's other offenses where it feels like it's catered to this player. And I'll be like, okay, who's the best example of somebody that's, that's really making one read. And then there's kind of a bailout throw and he'll be like golf. He said it numerous times and you can hear when he says it that way, he's basically disappointed that he's, he's being critical. It's not being nasty, but his confirmation and Dilfer's tone of the way he's talked about Goff is pretty obvious, at least for me, that is like, yeah, you know, Goff's got some, got some limitations. Let's look at this year. Now, McVay's not exactly the most critical, but it was the first time where it felt like McVay was actually being more critical of his quarterback. And you were starting to hear little rumblings the same way when I've talked about Garoppolo, where I'm like, eh, I don't know. And it doesn't mean because I've heard it and I share it with you guys where I'll say like, yeah, he's kind of hearing some of this stuff. It doesn't mean it's always going to happen. I'm just doing it because I think it's interesting and I'm trying to share it with the audience in a in a non-reporting you know reporting way. But one of those deals, you're like, yeah, I don't know that San Francisco's thrilled with Garoppolo. You know, the same reason when, what was it, a year and a half ago we were talking about Houston. And I go, that whole thing's kind of messed up, like O'Brien and Hopkins and even Deshaun. Like, I don't know how that thing's going to end. Now, it didn't mean that those guys were all going to be gone, but so far, two-thirds of that group in Houston are gone, and we'll see what happens with Deshaun. But it's the same thing with Goff, is that you were starting to just hear, like, I don't know. And I don't know if the Wolford start against Seattle before he got hurt means that it McVay was ready to completely turn the page on Goff the way I've seen it read a few times. Because let's face it, Goff was hurt. I mean, some of the throws against Seattle just weren't going to happen. Um, in the next game, you know, you give Goff a lot of credit, but that's kind of position you got to go out there and play when you're hurt. So I don't know if McVay not playing him is some confirmation of it, but it just felt like the vibe around the Goff McVay thing had changed. I think that part of it's fair. So that's where we're at. So they trade him for Matthew Stafford. Now, there's two camps with Stafford. One is his defenses historically have not been very supportive. I think they rank around 19th or 20th, depending on what metric you want to look at through his entire run through Detroit. One 1,000-yard rusher. All of those games without a guy that he even surpassed 100 yards. Or you're on the other side of it where you go, this guy doesn't beat any winning teams. His record against winning teams is atrocious. So how good is he? Or does he just put up stats in this new version of the NFL? Or does he put up stats because the team is always down all the time? I think Stafford is good. I think the career has been underwhelming. But I also don't have, I won't argue with anyone, he is an upgrade over Goff. And clearly, the Rams not only wanted to upgrade Goff, 
they were so desperate to get off of the money that that's when you start including all these first round picks. So it's a weird trade. It's just unprecedented because whenever we look at draft picks being traded and draft picks to go ahead and select quarterbacks, we'll say, oh, three firsts were used. Well, that's a little misleading. It's your first that year is, is, is you know flipped for the other team's first, and then you add two more a little bit later on. So it's really two and then kind of moving up. Um, but we like to kind of make it a bigger headline and be like, oh, they moved three first. Well, okay, but they also got like one back for it too. So again, maybe I'm just arguing semantics here, but I always see that all the time. So there's not really anything to compare this to. An Alex Smith trade, you know, that's not Stafford and it's not nearly the equity uh, coming back to the other side of it. The Garoppolo deal, historically, you're like, wait, I mean, granted, he hadn't really proved himself too much other than everybody seemed to love him. And all Belichick got for him was a second. In today's market, I would think you would get at least a first, even with Garoppolo's limited profile. But for Stafford, he'll be 33 at the start of the season and a contract that's two years and $43 million in today's world. And even with the cap and however messed up it may get post-COVID, that's a great deal. And on the other side, they're going to pay, I think, more in dead money this year than the average salary will be for Stafford. So they had to make this different. They had to move these pieces around. And I don't know who else was going to match up with this. Now, on the Lions side of it, you could talk yourself into golf if you want. He's 26 and the money that you're saving from what the Rams have to pay and adding these draft picks, like I ex- I expect you to get excited about it. But remember, Dan Campbell was given a six-year contract. That's a huge deal. And that's also a franchise telling the head coach, we're in this for the long haul. It's going to take some time. We're not expecting this to be a quick fix. And we're moving on from Stafford. So we know it's going to be more challenging. So instead of you taking a three- or four-year deal and knowing you'll probably be fired in a couple of years, we want to let you know the first couple of years aren't going to be that big of a factor in our evaluation of you. We're in it for the long haul. Now, look, that stuff, it's a lot easier to talk about the process than to live in the process. It's the Sixers example. Yeah, we're down. We'll do that. Wait, we're still losing. Wait, who's on the roster? Now the NBA's mad at us. Yeah, actually, you know, it was way more fun when we were theorizing instead of living in it every day for a couple of years. Look, I'm not telling you Detroit's going to tank and try to do a Sixers thing, but you know, we can get into some of the cap hit stuff. I, I love, I love that this is another example of Well, you know, you can't trade this guy. You can't trade that guy. You could do so many more things than we've accepted over the years financially in the NFL. Like if you really want to do something, you can make it happen. But back to the headline, the thing, the part of this that would really scare the shit out of me if I were a Lions fan is that the Rams would do all of this to move on from a guy they've had in house for years. This episode is brought to you by Netflix. A gentleman always opens the door for you, but the gentlemen are just as likely to break it down and stash their drugs inside. The Gentleman, based on Guy Ritchie's award-winning film, is a new Netflix series that follows a whole new cast of criminal lords and ladies slumming it in Britain's criminal underworld. Guns out and pinkies up. Don't miss The Gentleman, now playing only on Netflix. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock, Hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time. Said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand. It's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can 
Talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need. Have coverage options to protect the things you value most. File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did. And even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. We got Cowboys legend and 20 years with Fox, too, as well. Daryl Johnson joins us. So I know that we we got to a, a bunch of the games going over the schedule and everything, but I kind of want to start with your career. You're a few years in. You come into Dallas, Jimmy Johnson. You guys have that first tough year, and then pretty quickly you're putting this together. What was the level of confidence that you had in that first Super Bowl matchup against the Bills? Um, I, I think not as confident as Jimmy was. I mean, we, we found out. <laughs> Ron, that he was he was quite confident that we we're going to be able to generate some takeaways defensively. Uh, I, I just think from the experience standpoint, uh, you know, having it be Buffalo's third time there, uh, you know, haven't been able to to get over the top until that point. I think we're the youngest roster in the NFL at that time. So I think a lot of people went to experience. Uh, but I think that some of that probably helped us, you know, not really understanding how big that moment was. Uh, so for me, the one thing I do remember is because maybe it had become a situation for Buffalo where, hey, we've been there, done that. When the flyby went over the stadium, I mean, our sideline just erupted. I mean, there was so much emotion on ours. And I remember looking across, and it was just kind of business as usual for Buffalo. You know, just helmets coming on, getting ready to go to work. Um, You can interpret that two ways. Uh, They were focused and ready to go, uh, or were they going to be able to match our emotion and our intensity? so I, I felt really good at that point. You know, it was kind of the culmination of the journey. Uh, you mentioned the first year under Jimmy, but I think a lot of people forget that the second season, we were three and seven at one point. So we were four and 22 and we had worked really hard, especially, you know, the 90 season, um, you know, 1989, I think was a, a learning process and a feeling out process, but, but Jimmy really adjusted to doing things the way he always believed them, you know, during the course of 89, but really ramped it up in 90. So we had worked really hard and and really didn't have a lot of dividends there. Uh, You know, the big change was the addition of Norv Turner as our offensive coordinator. And and that's when things really started to take off. So from that moment on, you just started to see all the different pieces in place offensively kind of fit in perfectly to Norv's system. So I think even though we were young, uh, we were very confident. And, and I think beating San Francisco in San Francisco to get to that Super Bowl was a huge you know, feather in our cap. I, I think a lot of people still felt we were a year, maybe two years away from challenging them uh, for, uh, for supremacy in the NFC. But I, I tell a lot of people that that game at Candlestick and the championship game, I feel was the best game that that group ever played. Uh, I think we were plus four turnover ratio and we needed every single one of those. Uh, you know, that San Francisco team was, was extremely talented. So uh, once we were able to cross that threshold, um, you know, I think that there was confidence going into the Super Bowl. Uh, but, but that one moment I remember when the flyby came by and just the, the difference in, in how the sidelines reacted. And I took it to be, it was going to be hard for Buffalo to match our emotion and our intensity that game. I, I think those of us from the outside, you know, always wonder, you know, the the lead up, right? The time, the prep time is if it's like, okay, the meetings are more serious or somebody pulls you aside and says, all right, Moose, this is, this is exactly what you have to do. Like how specific is it? Because I can imagine there's a version of the approach where it's like, let's be really locked in. So we all feel really serious, but then also not wanting to get out of your routine and overthink it too much. So I'm just curious, at least for your first one, how that prep went, especially with a guy like Jimmy and Norv. 
Yeah, Jimmy did a great job of keeping it, um, you know, traditional as we had done all season long. Don't don't, don't make this out to be more than it is. It, it's yeah, it's the Super Bowl. Um, it's the culmination. It's the pinnacle of what we're trying to accomplish. But it's a game, and let's prepare the same way we've always prepared. That's why if you trust the process and you're doing things the right way, you should never have to adjust uh, in a moment like that. So you know, Jimmy said, if you're if, don't deviate from your your normal week's routine. Um, if you're going out to dinner on Wednesday night, if you're, if you're getting some pizzas with your guys in your positional group and watching some extra film, whatever you've done all season long up until this point, continue to have that process so you're comfortable in your preparation. Uh, and, and we got a great example of that the following year when San Francisco came to Dallas for the championship game. And Jimmy had the quote in the headlines of the Dallas paper, we're going to win the game and you can put it in three inch headlines. Well, at that time, the, the, the visiting team was coming in on Friday. So when San Francisco woke up Saturday morning to that in the Dallas morning news, they really kind of shifted their whole approach. Okay. What, what does he know that we're not aware of? And I remember talking to a lot of the 49er players about that. And, and uh, George Schieffer kind of reacted differently and deviated from what they had done and didn't trust the process and felt that, that we had discovered something uh, that, that maybe he could find with extra work and extra film. Uh, and, and that was not the case. That was just uh, that was just Jimmy's bravado and, and probably a little bit calculated, knowing that maybe he could get under George Seifert. Um, so that that was a great lesson the following year. But I thought that Jimmy and, and Norv and our entire staff did a really good job, uh, you know, as a young first year team at a Super Bowl of, of getting us to the point where, hey, this is just another game now. As soon as those jets flew by and, and the intros were at the Super Bowl, you knew it was anything but uh, a, a regular, ordinary game. But our preparation during the course of those two weeks uh, never deviated from, from what we did all season long. I mean, you forget the final score, but they scored the first touchdown of the game. Did yeah. you feel, what was it? Was it a physical thing? Was it guys talking to you on their defense? Like, was there ever a moment in that game where you went, okay, this we've, we've got him. And obviously the final score was a blowout, but I'm just, I don't know if there was one defining moment you remember from that game. I think the bounce back after that, uh, it was a special teams mistake that gave Buffalo a short field. We had a block punt. Um, you know, I was the personal protector at that time. And, and really what they did, they overloaded one side and they put Tasker, um, you know, inside away from the overload. So they isolated one of our guys uh, in a one-on-one situation, but they knew by our blocking scheme, it was going to pull me all the way to the overload side. The way we did it at that time is I would go to the outside guy on the overload. Uh, I probably should have hung a little bit longer because I did see Steve there uh, and I knew that it was going to be a challenging matchup uh, because the overload was to the left. There was two guys left on the right. The guy outside Steve Tasker went wide. So they really just created a perfect isolation uh, between Steve. And, and, and listen, I blocked Steve on the wing uh, on PAT field goal and on punt. And, and Steve was a, he was a beast, uh, you know, to block. So uh, he did a great job. It was a great scheme. They executed it. Uh, you know, got the block punt and got a touchdown off of it. So I, I think the way we responded immediately after that, uh, that's when everybody kind of started to settle in. And, and maybe it was good to have a little bit of adversity right there at the top of the game uh, as a young team and be able to to, to respond and show everybody uh, that, that uh, you know, you, you weren't going to be impacted by something negative early in the game. So the in the rematch, were you were you way less impressed with Buffalo, just knowing what you had done to them a year prior? No, they had beaten us that year uh, in week two. Uh, it, it was part of a you know MS holdout. Uh, they'd come down to Dallas and, and knocked us off down there. Um, 
you know, the, the, the second one, that, that was a tough year. You know, we, we at 0-2, we kind of put ourselves into a hole a little bit. The NFC East was really strong at that time. Um, you know, we were always trying to, you know, go through that process of, of getting into the playoffs, uh, either, you know, securing a home playoff game, uh, you know, having, you know, home field advantage throughout the course of the entire conference. Uh, so there was a process that we would go through. And at 0-2, we thought we'd maybe kind of given up that opportunity, but we were able to get on a great run and, and, and carry it through uh, the rest of the year. Um, I still think it was one of Jimmy's best coaching moments, you know, of his tenure with us, uh, because it was 13, six at halftime and, you know, Buffalo was ahead. They'd really shut down our, our inside run game from tackle to tackle. They, they were doing a really good job. They were stunning and, and, uh, and looping the linebackers and, and it was giving us some issues with what we do inside. Uh, and as we were walking into the locker room, Jimmy was there to greet everybody on the offensive side of the ball and said, listen, we know what they're doing. Uh, you know, we've, we've got a counter to it. So everybody get in, you know, get, get your, get your hydration going, you know, you know, get some rest. We've got a long halftime. We're going to come out. We're going to, we're going to go over everything just to make sure we've got this right. And we went back and we pulled up a play from about four or five weeks prior to that. And the idea was we're going to run this. We're going to force them out of what they're doing and get back to our inside tackle game runs and they never got out of that and, and if you go back and watch that game the opening drive of the second half we went down the field basically running the same play right and left and you know that was the, the counter to what they were doing I mean there was just gaping holes you know off the edge and Buffalo never adjusted to that so we just continued to hit them with what we called power uh, where you, you're blocked down you pull the guard and I'm on the lead on the end of the line there was a lot of times when there was nobody there for me to block and I was I was six yards downfield before I had a defender there so, uh, you know, Buffalo just never adjusted to that. And, uh, you know, we were able to, to, to come out and play a really good second half. Because, you know, we, we look at the game today and it's just spread them out and it's almost like an inside handoff is a wasted play now, right? But the way that you were built with the offensive line, with Troy as a decision maker, with, you know, outside matchups that you could go to, it, it felt like even though it wasn't this wide open deal, like you could do a lot of different things offensively. So how adaptable were you then? I mean, even though you're talking about running the same exact play, like how much did all of those components allow you to maybe adjust more than other teams? Uh, so much more. Um, you know, we were, we were not just a, you know, a, a downhill running team. You know, that was the dilemma that we, we put defenses in. We, we, we felt that they couldn't be right. If, if they were going to load up the box and try to stop Emmett, you know, you, you were putting yourselves in one-on-one matchups with Michael Irvin, Jay Novacek, uh, you know, I remember talking to Andy Reid one time and, and when he was at Green Bay, he said the two matchups that we, we just never could, you know, kind of resolve playing against you guys. We couldn't block Leon Lett inside and we couldn't cover Jay Novacek. Um, and, and those were, you know, things that we used to our advantage on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, OK, hey, you know, you're you're concerned about the run, but you're also worried about the pass. So you're going to do things differently there. Well, we're, we're going to just come downhill at you. So it was really just a box count and, and certain things, you know, we didn't have the flexibility at the line of scrimmage to do a true audible system. We had some check with bees that were there. Uh, but, you know, we were never live audible at the line of scrimmage, you know, nor was a tremendous play call. Uh, just the ability for him to anticipate position of the field down in distance, what defenses were going to do based on his breakdowns. Uh, you know, we were, we were usually in really good play call situations. Uh, the other thing that he did is, you know, we would practice these explosive opportunities for weeks before he felt comfortable. And when those plays were called during the course of the game, I, I could never go back and, and, and get you the, the analytics specifically for this, because, you know, I probably wouldn't be able to remember all the exact plays, but 
just from memory, I knew those were always 30 plus yard plays when they came in. I mean, we were so good at executing those and it was based off of something the defense had shown. Um, so, you know, what people do today with the run pass option, we were kind of doing that back then, but just in a different way. We weren't doing that at the line of scrimmage um, as much as, as we were just, how are you going to defend us? And then you can't be right. We're going to make you wrong. Um, and, and we had the ability to do that with a very strong running game inside and on the edge. And then we had some matchups that people just couldn't, you know, really couldn't line up and play us man to man and think that they were going to have success. I never cared who won those San Francisco or Dallas games. I'm from the Northeast, so I, it never was. But that was for me as, as a fan peak NFL for me. It was it was the best because those teams were so talented. You never quite knew who was going to win. Um, you definitely didn't like each other. I'm sure there was a level of respect removed from it, but that was, you know, as much as people talk about Pittsburgh and Baltimore, you know, a decade or so ago and how physical those games were, I feel like you were just playing football. I, I don't know. It, it's hard to explain to maybe some, there's people my age or older going, yeah, man, because that's, that's what it was. Like you just stopped whatever you were doing when you two played. Yeah, it was, it was great. And, and you're exactly right. There was, uh, there was a, a definitely a respect factor there, but there was there was animosity uh, because it was always huge stakes. E- even if it was a regular season game, it was it was positioning for the opportunity to have home field advantage throughout the playoffs. So every game against San Francisco had tremendous meaning, and that's really where a rivalry comes from. Um, you know, it, it's hard to have a rivalry when there's there's nothing on the line, there's nothing at stake in those games. And 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 I mean no disrespect to this, but when we played, you know the Washington Dallas rivalry was, was the one that the fan base really cherished. And, and the, the, just the historical matchups there, there was, you know, big moments in those rivalries for us, it was Philadelphia in our division. You know, that was the team that we were continually playing in the playoffs. Uh, that was a very physical team that matched up well against us. And, and then obviously it went to San Francisco uh, and then green Bay, even a little bit there. I mean, the games just became big. They were, they were, they were divisional round games. They were, they were championship games. Uh, when you have that much at stake, that, that matchup becomes even more intense, uh, but definitely a tremendous amount of respect uh, for the guys from San Francisco, uh, you know, how good they were, but th- there was nothing better than knocking them off. Um, and I've always said this, the, the San Francisco fan base, uh, when we were a candlestick, not a lot of people talk about that. They talk about the vet. They talk about different areas where it's tough to play. That was a really, really challenging place to play. Uh, and that was a tough fan base uh, when, when you were out there on their home field. So uh, I, I just never thought that they got the credit for how difficult that place was to play. I, I love candlesticks. Somebody sent me a picture when they had torn it down and you just had the pile of rubble there. And that, that was kind of a, that was a disappointing day because you started thinking about all the great games that were played, you know, at that facility. You had Kansas City twice this year. You had Tampa twice um, on the broadcast. What's the first thing you'll look for? Because, again, they did play each other, which, you know, looking back, it's, it's still kind of a weird game in Week 10 because Kansas City got on them immediately. 17 nothing ends up being a field goal game. I personally, like, I, I look at it as Kansas City knowing what they could do as opposed to maybe, you know, Tampa had figured some things out with their coverage defensively. But what's the first thing you'll be looking at where you go, okay, you know, either either side of the football, something specific where you're going to be looking for something to jump out to give you kind of a tell of how the game plan is going to go for either side? Yeah, not leaving Tyree Kill in one-on-one coverage a whole <laughs> yes. bunch of the game. Uh, <laughs> you, you can't have 206 in the first quarter again this time. So, um you know, that'll be the big thing. What does is, what is Todd Bowles do to kind of counter that? And I think that that's the most challenging thing. We talked about he, we, we would put people in a dilemma with a run in the pass. I, I think what 
what Eric Bieniemy and Andy Reid are able to do uh, with Kansas City's offense is they'll use a little bit of, of a run pass dilemma, but their biggest thing is in the pass game. You, you've got all this speed going down the field, and then you've got Travis Kelsey just eating you alive in the middle of the field. So for me, it's going to be how do you how do you manage Tyree Kill and limit his explosive plays down the field, along with keeping Travis Kelsey from tearing you apart. You know, in that intermediate range, I, I think the, the the Devin White Travis Kelsey matchup, you know, could be just one of those great matchups that we get an opportunity to see with with everything on the line. Uh, the the big thing for me is is we had Tampa twice. They were they were starting to turn the corner when we had them the first time against Carolina, uh, and then we had them against Atlanta later in the year, and you could see the the improvement. So this is this has been a journey for Tom Brady this whole season. Uh, you know, getting comfortable in Bruce Arians' system, very different from what he did in New England, understanding the subtleties and the nuances of that offense, and then really all the pieces in that offense. You know, how does how does Mike Evans, you know, run these routes? You know, how, how does Chris Godwin, where does he like the ball placed? You know, Cameron Bray now stepping up. Um, you know, Scotty Miller uh, in, in what he can do with, with Antonio Bryan out of the lineup. So, you know, we've just watched Tom Brady get better and better and better and more confident. I saw that in Green Bay. Um, you know, that was my big concern in that game. I, I really thought Green Bay was going to win that game. And, and I really thought they would win it handily. I thought they'd win by, by 10, 14. Um, I just thought that the Green Bay was playing so well defensively. They had a really, really tough day. Uh, and I put a lot of that on how good Tom Brady has gotten in this offense. So that that's going to be the big thing. And, and Kansas City is kind of that team. You always have to worry about it. I mean, what they did last year in the playoffs, I mean, that's going to be huge for them. You know, whatever happens in this game, they always are going to know that they have the ability to get out of it. But I haven't seen that that explosive just scare the heck out of you from Kansas City in a while. I, I think they've become a very good complementary team. I think their defense is playing much better than people give them credit for. I think that's going to be a, another great, you know, matchup during the course of this game is, is Kansas City secondary against all those weapons that Tom Brady has. Uh, I think Chris Jones has to be huge inside. Uh, to stuff the run, uh, and, and you know that that's uh, that that's going to be uh, one of the big ones. Um, so, the big thing for me is you know seeing something very similar to what happened in Green Bay, where that game earlier in the year, even though you know Tampa Bay just you know throttled them, it, it was really you know just a bad game by Green Bay. Uh, and to see where they were at the championship game and how well they had played, you know, the latter part of the season in December, you know, the divisional round against the Rams. I, I just didn't expect that type of performance there. Um, so Tampa Bay's playing their best football of the year, you know, through the playoffs. Uh, Kansas City has been up and down a little bit. So I, I think that that's going to be the big thing. They did play really, really well against the Bills. That, that, was, that was a game that uh, was not even close. So they, they, they can take some, some credit there by, by going up against a very good Buffalo team and, and really never being in, you know, threatened at all you know, to lose that game. Feel like you described Tampa perfectly, though, because you know they've had a couple games. The Saints game, the rematch, where you go, okay, I'm supposed to take them seriously, but it was so yeah. bad that you just kind of like, oh, all right, you know, what are you supposed to do here? And I felt like that with the Green Bay regular season matchup, where you go, some of these games just get so away from you, especially with the scoring today, that I don't know what you put into it. And I remember when Tampa was a seven and five, and we're like, what, what's going on here? And then you look, they got the Vikings, they got Atlanta twice at Detroit. I was like, they're probably going to end up eleven and five, and I still won't know what to do with them. But the Green Bay win at Green Bay because I felt like they did it two different ways. Tom 
was like basically flawless the first half. That Evans throw on the left sideline, the the touchdown to the left side, and I'm like, this guy's completely locked in. And then he gets a little sloppy with some picks, but they're more like Brady picks where it's not that he didn't see somebody. It's just that, you know, something stupid happened and then, you know, he threw the ball up in the air, especially that one of the right sideline. But then Bowles in that defense when all the momentum was on Green Bay's side. So they've been a weird team to figure out because there's moments where they've been terrific and other teams are the times they haven't. Do you think they have enough? Like, is there a number here defensively where you go, hey, keep Kansas City to 24 and you have a chance? Because I feel like it's 24 just from them walking out of the tunnel. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. Um, you know, I, I don't know what their lowest you know point total has been this year. You know, we, we, the, the two times we had them, um, and and this is the big thing. You know, when, when you're when you're playing against Kansas City, you know, you want to keep all that explosive offense on the sidelines. So we watched Carolina play them that way, long, extensive drives, just killing the clock. Uh, Atlanta did the same thing uh, when they came into town to play. So there's a style that everybody's trying to emulate, and you know how much will will the uh will the buccaneers you know kind of take that to heart because you've got bruce arians who's no risk it no biscuit is he going to be able to be patient and that right. was our big thing when we had you know rogers against the rams was listen these guys play a big shell coverage they're not letting anybody get behind them so can you be patient enough underneath and running the football and then when you have those opportunities down the field capitalize on them and, and i thought you know aaron just did a great job of executing that game plan against the rams you know, Brady's in a similar situation now. Can, can he do that? Um, you you want to be able to keep them on the sideline. I, I think Ronald Jones is going to be huge. I know Leonard Fournette's been on a roll, and he always gets on rolls in the playoffs. But to me, the scary guy in that offense is Ronald Jones. When he gets going, uh, you know, we, we had him in one of the games. He had a 98-yard touchdown run. Uh, he just, to me, he's a little bit more dynamic uh, than Leonard Fournette is. I think it's a great one-two punch for him. Um, but if, if Ronald Jones is able to get, you know, eight to 12 snaps in that game and, and be a factor, I, I think that that's big and that keeps that offense on the sideline. And, and so to me, it's going to be, it's going to be all about patience and it's not about Tom because we've seen Tom do that in new England on numerous occasions. We're just grinded out. You see all these clips when he's on the sidelines telling the guys, Hey, you know, we need one of those seven minute drives right now. He, he understands that he buys into that. The big question is, can Byron Leftwich and Bruce Arians call the game in a way that allows Tom to execute it in that format. Yeah, Brady can do it. Brady can be patient. I just don't Absolutely. know if Bruce can uh, because I, I don't think it, he can. Honestly, I really don't. I don't think he can. <laughs> no, it's. And I'm so glad you brought up Ronald Jones because the Fournette part is these flashes of of who he looked like when he was drafted fourth overall. The, the unfortunate thing is like, oh yeah, that's right. That's what it used to look like. I mean, Joe Buck's call was perfect. He goes, "This is LSU Fournette." But I, I every time Jones has a carry, I feel like he has a chance, you know. And I'm I'm not looking at him as as one of those you know Dalvin Cook types where every you know every single time or McCaffrey necessarily. But um, Jones is an incredibly underrated player. I don't think he gets enough credit. No, not at all. Um, and, and he's had a tough road to hoe, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's earned every top opportunity he's gotten. And it just seems like nobody wants to commit to him being the guy. Um, you know, maybe a few bumps in the road, you know, early in his career. But, you know, he, he's, he's played well. He played well last year down stretch. Uh, he, he's been really good this year. You know, he, he won that battle you know, straight out about week seven, or week eight, it was a running back by committee uh, with, with all the different guys that were there. And then, I mean, all of a sudden, if you're watching the film, you're like, you know, th this is not by committee anymore. Th this is Ronald Jones's job to lose. Um, and, you know, I just, you know, that, that injury at the end of the year gives Leonard a chance. And, and that's really what it's about is, is guys get an opportunity. If you take advantage of it, now you, you shift the coach's thinking. So 
I've just I've felt since about week ten that if, if Tampa Bay was going to do something special, Ronald Jones was going to need to be a big player. So it still sounds like you're leaning Kansas City here. Uh, you know, I'm horrible. I actually had a uh, Bills Packers Super Bowl, so I'm probably not the guy to talk. Oh, you were uh, almost there. Are you kidding? That's that's pretty good. Are you? That was last week. No, oh, I, mean, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I thought you meant before. I thought we were talking August here. Yeah, I couldn't even get that right going into the championship game. Um, you know, did I learn my lesson? Did, did I feel that that Green Bay was was just so much better than than Tampa at that time, not realizing the progress that, that Tom Brady and that offense has made? Um, I, I just really think it's going to come down to, you know, the red zone performance by, you know, Tampa Bay's defense. Uh, Green Bay it was, was a machine this year. I think they were 80% touchdown efficiency. Um, you know, it, it just, you know, historical numbers when they got into the red zone scoring touchdowns. I mean, Tampa Bay was unbelievable in how they played once they got down into the red zone. I mean, that was the difference in that game. Um, you know, can, can they do that same thing to Kansas City? I, I, I just think Kansas City and, and, and Andy's creativity once he gets into the red zone, uh, it's just it's such a condensed portion of the field that, you know, you got to throw some traditional stuff out and just get really creative. And, and Andy's not afraid to do that. So, you know, how does that Tampa Bay defense play red zone defense against maybe some non-traditional personnel groups or non-traditional plays that Andy's going to draw up for you? Because one of the things that, that he shared with us during the course of the season is, especially in the red zone, it, it's like an incubator. Like the guys design stuff and he allows it to be run at practice. And if he likes it, he, he will call it during the game. And by giving the players ownership in that situation, they're desire to execute it flawlessly goes up dramatically so that's why you see some of these things in Patrick Mahomes with all these different kinds of shovels and it's it's Travis Kelsey Kelsey it's Anthony Sherman you know just some of the things that they're doing down there inside the five uh, are just so unconventional and so hard to defend I think that will be the key uh, is is Tampa Bay's red zone defense and, and maybe tight red zone um, more than just once you get inside that 25, 20-yard line. How do they do that inside the 10 and the 5, where that creativity and that that ability of of the players to submit plays and execute them in practice and have Andy and, and Eric Bieniemy buy into running that actually during the game? Thanks, man. You got it. This episode is supported by H&R Block. Knock, knock. Real estate pros. You could save up to 30% when you file your business taxes with Block Advisors instead of a typical accountant. That's because Block Advisors was built by H&R Block to provide small business tax prep that doesn't cost an arm and a leg. Their tax pros are specially trained to help real estate pros like you get every available credit and deduction, 100% accuracy, guaranteed. Visit blockadvisors.com slash estate today to get started. Average savings based on national average fees for Federal Form 1040 plus Schedule C and one state filing in latest available 2020 survey conducted by the National Society of Accountants. Pricing may vary. See blockadvisors.com forward slash guarantees for full details. This episode is brought to you by Seed. You know, as you're getting a little bit older and you're like, hey, I wonder if I need that supplement. What's going on with that one? Does this one make me feel better or did I just buy it or did somebody suggest it? I'm not really quite sure what the deal is. I'll tell you this, probiotics, the right ones. They work. Did you know that most green powders and probiotics don't survive digestion? 
Seeds DS01, Daily Symbiotic, is engineered in a two-in-one capsule to safeguard viability through digestion for complete delivery to your colon. A broad-spectrum probiotic and prebiotic formulated with 24-hour clinically and scientifically studied strains for whole body benefits, including gut, heart, and skin health. Visit seed.com slash Ryan, R-Y-E-N. Use the code 25RYAN, R-Y-E-N, that's 25RYAN, to start seeding today. I want to do some NBA stuff here quickly before we get to life advice because that Nets-Wizards game on Sunday was was ridiculous. 149-146 win for the Wizards. The Wizards scored 48 points in the fourth quarter of this one. Now, Russ was great. It was, it was good Russ. Um, I was arguing with a couple guys at Ringer about, you know, Westbrook and like, where you thought he was going to be. And, you know, he's he's been bad. I mean, he's just, he's just been awful. I mean, I think there's a version of Westbrook when it's all said and done. Like, I don't really know what we're going to say with his career. But on a Sunday night, he looked terrific, and he hit a huge three that basically won this game. Um, and we'll, we'll get to some of this stuff. But Lillard, after he hit his game winner against the Bulls, and that Bulls loss was atrocious, I, I still can't believe some of the calls that they make in, on some of these late-game situations. Like, you're going to call these illegal screens when guys fall down. Like, I just don't think there should be, like, no – I'm not saying an illegal screen. They're all allowed. But I, I just – a collision on a screen and where somebody falls down and then all of a sudden, like, all right, we're going to call that. When you're like, you know, you're, you're really doing the defensive player a favor if he knows that that's going to be called a lot. And again, that's that's a bigger issue on officiating and all this stuff. And then Lillard hits a step back. And so Lillard tweets, I don't know if it was a reaction to some Zach Levine thing because somebody else had posted this deal about Zach Levine owning the Portland Trailblazers. And then and Lillard hits another just walk off. And it was a sick shot. It was ridiculous how great that shot was. And so Lillard went at that. And then Lillard yesterday was tweeting, as someone that watches a lot of NBA games, not just highlights and box scores, it's obvious that so many people who speak on the game don't really watch. And then Bradley Beal quote tweets it, all caps, box score fans the worst. Well, the irony of that statement, as much as I like Beal, he's been on this pout mission here for a couple weeks, and he was doing it again in the first half. And so if you only went by the box score, Beal looks incredible in this game. 37 points, six boards, four assists, uh, 13 to 23, nine for nine from the free throw line. So that, as a box score fan, makes Beal look great. But if you were a non-box score game guy and you were actually watching the game, you could see somebody who just, like you could talk about him in the flow of the game and not taking shots in the first, first quarter. I don't know what he was trying to prove there, but he just, he was taking the time off. Like just wasn't interested. No movement swinging it when he was the option um a couple timeouts where he went and didn't want to high five anybody it was weird and then he sat away from everybody so if you've been watching wizards games which for some reason i i happen to be on this weird wizard stretch where you're watching beal beal's putting up these great numbers they're now four and twelve They've had really bad luck with the COVID situation. I mean, look at them. They played 16 games. You know, a lot of these other teams have played six to seven more games than them. Um, and they're thin. The Bryant injury, he's having surgery this week. So we know that the team overall isn't good. I still think they should be better record-wise, even if I don't love Westbrook. And I do like Beal, I think, with those two guys in the East. But we're going to go through some schedule stuff here in a bit. They should have a better record than this. But Westbrook's been so bad. And so... The irony of the whole Beal statement that, oh, if you're just going to be a box score guy. Okay, but the, the box score guy thinks you're awesome on a Monday morning. And the guy watching, the non-box score game guy, is watching you play 
going, what's what's your mission right now? Because as much as the Wizards and the newest news is they don't want to trade him, they don't want to trade I don't know what to believe on that. Are the prices really high? Um, you know, the problem with this, if you trade Beal, that means you have Westbrook for $91 million as the guy. And no one holds a franchise hostage more than Russell Westbrook does. Because when he's on your team, you play his way. But listen to the announcers who were really good for the Wizards. But I think it was Drew Gooden who was saying in this great Westbrook game that his struggles earlier this season was because he was gun shy. He's averaging 18 attempts per game. He took 28 shots yesterday. He was good yesterday. He was good. Guess what he's also going to do? He's going to have some awful stretches where it looks bad. I couldn't believe, and I completely screwed up a tweet where I was like, I may ban the Wizards. They ran an action where it was a Beal handoff to Westbrook for a huge possession, and he missed a three. You know, like, that's what you would do with under 20 seconds left. Now, granted, Beal got a three. They get the steal. Westbrook gets the three. So they end up winning the game, and that tweet looks incredibly stupid. But what I'll tell you is there's never going to be a time where a Beal handoff to Westbrook for a three at the biggest moment of the game is ever a good idea. So um, that that whole thing with Beal kind of going like, oh, guys that don't know the game, the guys that knew the game were on your ass yesterday because they couldn't believe. Uh, it wasn't a lack of effort. It was just complete disinterest with being out there. And to his credit, he played great in the second half, but I don't know. Like, what is his goal? Is it the passive aggressive, like, I want out of here, but I don't want to say it, or I want out of here and they're not going to do it? But as we all know, players can always force their way out, especially if you're as good as Beal is. That game was, again, crazy. Westbrook, 41 points. Joe Harris had 30. Durant had 37. Jeff Green had 23, minus 19 for the game. Um, And it was a real minus 19. Kyrie has moments again every now and then. You're like, God, he's so good. The Nets have been tracking this since the Harden trade. Fourth quarter offense, 133 points per 100 possessions. Nine points better than the number two fourth quarter offense in the NBA. The other side of that, defensively in the fourth quarter since the Harden trade, again, Harden play yesterday, they're allowing 127 points per 100 possession. So that's their fourth quarter number. They're number one in offense. They're the worst in defense. And ironically enough, they're both nine points better, or in this case, worse than the second worst defensive team in that fourth quarter. Um, if you looked at their offense overall and defense overall since the Harden trade, they're on track to have the greatest offense of all time, which again, all these offenses are now becoming the greatest offenses of all time because everybody's just playing higher, more pace, more shots. We've covered this. They're also on pace to have statistically the worst defense of all time with the Harden part. Again, I don't know if those numbers are actually going to hold up. One last thing that I want to get to on this because you know in the beginning of the year I was just like look that that western conference now is deeper at the bottom than I think it's ever been the talent level on the bad teams in the west is still pretty good and you you don't really know what you're going to run into like phoenix had that great start and then recently they were kind of out of the playoffs again um they've won two in a row they were 8 and 8 and I I think I was looking at it they actually were on the outside of the top 8 seeds um Teams that are outside as of right now, Golden State and San Antonio are tied. Golden State has a tiebreaker. You know, I'm not going to run through an entire thing of playoff standings. What I am going to do is look at some of the East-West standings that are really important. Because as I have it right now, um, Philly, who that game without Embiid being that down to the Pacers, that win for them, I thought it was a terrific win yesterday. 
The Pacers have had a bit of a setback because they were 11-7 and seven and, and one of the better records uh, in the league, but they've lost two in a row, whatever. They're still a five seed. It's just whatever you think of the Pacers, you should just go, okay, whatever I think of them, they're going to end up being a little bit better than this. All right, so if I go expanded standings, getting back to that East-West thing, there are eight teams in the NBA that have a winning record against the West. Philadelphia is not one of them. Philly's 2-2, two and two, which is actually not bad. But Philadelphia going into the Minnesota game this weekend had, and it still may be the case, they've only played four games against the West. The only team, I think, with less games against the West are the Boston Celtics, and they're 1-2. and two. Um, And Boston, again, every night, trying to figure out their lineups. Nice effort against the Lakers, but I still think there's a version of the Celtics that can be really, really good, maybe even challenge the East, but it's just hard to buy in, and Kemba's looked really bad since he came back. And the front line, it might be a Rob Williams deal here instead of Tristan because he's been disappointing. Teague, who I liked over Wanamaker, that hasn't been the case whatsoever. All right, so Celtics ran over. But the Sixers have had the easiest schedule, and you know I don't know if that's changed in the last 48 hours in the NBA. Minnesota, on the other side, as they were playing in that game, has had the hardest. But if you dig through this conference stuff again, Eight teams with winning records against the West. 19 teams had a winning record against the East. So that bottom part, you know, we've had some surprises with Cleveland, the Knicks, there's been a bit of a correction here, but you start going through it. Like the big boys are the teams that Utah Jazz are 10 and three against the West. The Clippers are 10 and four. Nuggets, nine and seven. Lakers, 10 and four. Warriors are seven and five. Phoenix is eight and six. And then it just, no one else except for Atlanta has a four and two record, and then Brooklyn has a four and three record. There's a couple 500s in there, but um, the difference between these two conferences, especially the teams outside of the top eight, it is it's like two completely different worlds. Before we finish with life advice, uh, I want to tell you about FanDuel. I've got to take a minute to give a shout out, though, to the FanDuel Sportsbook. They found the perfect way for everyone to get in on the action this Sunday. I'm talking about Big Game Bingo. Yep. You can claim your free Big Game Bingo card right now on the FanDuel Sportsbook app. The card automatically fills up as you're watching the game. So once you've filled five squares in a row, all you have to do is call Bingo to claim your share of $100,000 in prizes. Kyle, you ever play bingo? You ever go to a hall? Big play fan. A bingo? Big fan of bingo. It's exhilarating. I knew that. Didn't know it. Knew it. That's what I'm saying. That's right. FanDuel is giving away $100,000 in prizes for free. FanDuel is the exclusive home for big game bingo, and your card is waiting for you right now on the FanDuel Sportsbook app. The app is so easy to use, and it takes less than two minutes to sign up. There are more ways to win on FanDuel during the big game, but there's no excuse to miss out on this one. Big game bingo is perfect for everyone. You can win your shares of $100,000 in prizes, and it's absolutely free to play only on the FanDuel Sportsbook app. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice, rr at gmail.com. We are, uh, we are loaded with uh, submissions here, so I don't know that Kyle was able to get to all of them and sort through them. We should do a check-in with Kyle. It's been about an hour. So, yeah, good day to you. I haven't said much. Just, we've just been banking guests, and I've just been super happy about it. So, it's been a great hour. That's why I haven't said anything. Yeah. No, you, you know when to shoot, when not to shoot. You're, you're not the Westbrook of, of producing. So 
Let's uh, let's get to a couple here. Hey, Ryan, Kyle, 5'10", three quarters. You can call it 5'11". I still don't know how this happened, but that's cool. We'll keep going through it. Used to be a marathoner, but a bulging disc keeps me groundbound nowadays. I got a planter thing going on my left foot right now. Brutal. Couldn't even walk yesterday. Played hoops with no rim again. I'm actually thinking about tweeting out, does anyone in the South Bay have a decent outdoor court? I will, I will pay you 20 bucks. I'll bring subs over and you can eat and we don't have to say hi. We don't have to interact. I'm by myself, so I'm not, really I'm not high risk. <laughs> that's really sad. I don't know. I think it shows dedication. With no, no rims, just trying to get some shots up. <laughs> people look, people look and go, of "What course. the hell's going on?" But it had been it's been a few weeks since I'd ever done anything like that, side to side or whatever. And I, I don't know. I, you guys want to hear about my injuries more? No. Okay, moving on. Back to the email. After six years of anticipation, I got engaged to my girlfriend just as the pandemic hit Rudy Gobert and the rest of the country in March of 2020. My fiance. And I see eye to eye on many things. Two liberal Jewish people growing up in New York City area tend to do that. But when it comes to our new family name, we have never quite been on the same page. Right out of the gate, I totally get her wanting to keep her own name. She's our own person. I don't expect her to take mine. Okay. From her view, she'd love for me to take her name. Huh. If not that, she would want to do something original like combining our last names. My perspective, I'm open to doing a hyphenation. If anything, it'd be nice to just be my last name, her last name. She could do her last name first if that's her preference. Perhaps the biggest challenge would be what we want to name our kids. While I want to support her, I already feel like I'm doing plenty when I'm totally cool with her taking whatever name she wants. But to not have the kids at least go my last name, her last name is tough to swallow. I'm trying to prolong a family name as a male that is important to me, and I do feel like I owe it to my parents as well. I guess the ultimate compromise would just be an entirely original family name, but obviously that leaves me in a tough spot. I feel like I'm doing my fair share and then some already. Do I need to give up the naming rights in order to support my fiance's wishes? Whoa. All right. Let's talk about generations here because... I remember, you know, however my father sees the world would be differently from how I see the world, how maybe you listening see the world, and how my father's father would see the world be different than how my father sees the world, okay? This is pretty typical stuff here, all right? So my grandfather may have said something in 1960 that he thought was normal, um, you know, coming out of the war, maybe in 1950s, how he felt about, uh, let's say, an enemy nation, that just wouldn't, uh, wouldn't fly today. All right. Are we all on the same page here? All right. So I think there's, there's times where previous generations can just be outdated with the way they see things. So the reason I bring this up is that I remember my father, when I was a lot younger saying to me, Hey, you know, if, if your wife doesn't want to take your last name, that's, that's a bad sign. That's a flag. That's a red flag. I'm at the point now. Um, I would agree with him then impressionable younger, you live a little bit longer, maybe a couple decades. And I go like, I don't care. I don't, if my wife didn't want to take my last name, I wouldn't care. And I'm probably even more desensitized to it than most would be because in my industry, so many women don't take, um, their husband's last name because they've already been on TV and built up their name and a brand and all that stuff. Now, if they do want to change it, great. If they don't great, I don't care. Seriously. If my wife said, Hey, I'm not taking your last name. It would not bother me. And as my father said to me 20 years ago, I don't think it's a red flag. Now this is really modern. So maybe my thoughts on you taking her last name and getting rid of your own, maybe these will be outdated in 20 years, but I don't know what the hell we're doing on some of this stuff anymore. Um, 
that is, I'll admit, like, I don't know. I just, am I traditional? Am I, am I, I don't know. I sometimes I'll be like, am I a caveman when I go, she wants you to take her name? Like, what the hell is that about? So I got to tell you, I already, I already think you're at a disadvantage here if this stuff is even coming up. Like, I think you kind of know you're writing here and you're saying, Hey, you know, she's, she wants me to take, let me read that again. From her view, she'd love for me to take her name. Uh, you know, this is where somebody goes, is nothing sacred? So if she's proposing that, my guess is these kids aren't going to have your last name. And the thing that every woman has over the rest of us is they're the one going through carrying and birth. And we never have to do that. And so when it comes to the naming stuff, they win and they should win. It'd be really nice, um, you know, if, if you were a guy and, you know, sometimes I think about it, I'm not exactly in that mode. Um, like, oh, would it be cool to like name somebody a family name? I seem to think a lot of my Fairfield County rich friends have these weird names that are like middle names that are like, like, what the hell is that? Like, oh, it's a family name. And I'm like, oh man, like when you get rich, you just make up weird rules about naming and give people like weird middle names. And then you just say, oh, and it's like my second middle name. I got to tell you, that should be a goal for people. Get rich enough where you start making up weird middle names and just say, oh, it's a family thing. It's our crest. But on this one, it's, it sounds like you already know you're going to lose. So I don't, I don't know that she's going to be able to be talked to about this. If she actually wants you to take her last name in the marriage, like even proposing that means you're not going to win one argument about what to name these kids. So, uh, that one's tough. Look, I know somebody really well who there was an argument about the child's name and everybody finally came to an agreement on the kid's name and the person that I know again, really well just wrote down a different name on the birth certificate, the name that she wanted. <laughs> and then the kid found out years later that his real name wasn't his name. And I was like, that's kind of fucked up. I was like, whatever. I gave birth. And I was like, yeah, yeah. But now you got a kid who like all of his paperwork when he becomes an adult is all going to be screwed up all the time. And he never knew he had a different name. So uh, all I can say is I don't have much advice other than good luck with all that norms are weird what's that i said norms are weird it's like social norms i'm worried because i don't have the coolest last name and the person i'm with now has a pretty cool last name and like you know kids and is like tons of money and years down the road if it were to happen but i'm like hey she might be like listen your last name sucks and mine's cool and this is how it is so i get it yeah that's I mean, what that's why i'm allowing like i don't know in in 20 years maybe i don't know 10 years we'll the norms change. It's like, actually it should be the, it's like who's got know, the better assets here. Who's got the cooler last name? <laughs> like, you know, which would sound better as a football player. Not my name. I'll tell you that. I don't think I'm modern enough yet for that one to be. Oh honest no, me neither. I'm scared to death of it, but I just look at the facts. It's like, Hey, your last name's not cool, dude. I could see an Atlantic cover story though. Why last names need to change. <laughs> there we go. I don't know. I mean, maybe you can just do the hyphen thing, you know? Maybe you can do it that way. There's, there's plenty of people to do that. So I, I'm, again, I don't have a problem with any of that. I'm just saying if she wants you to take her last name, that, that 
there's some alarms Ratings going off with me over here where I was like, all right, yeah, you're probably not going to win any of this. Okay. Young guy checking in. Some of you dudes, by the way, that send in emails, it's funny because you'll talk about your looks, which I, I love um, the self-assessment, right? We, we talked about that before. What would your own scattering report be? I like some of the self-assessment here. And some of you guys will be like, hey, I'm still pretty good looking, but you don't realize like a picture's rolling in. And then some of you other guys are like a little too down on yourself and you look really good. So, you know, shout out to all of you out there. All right. Love the podcast. Shout out to Kyle. I'll start giving a little background. 5'10", 170 can dunk. Okay. That's pretty good. Um, seven in the looks department. You know what? This guy is a good looking guy. Looks fine. All right. Not the hottest thing walking around, but not the worst either. Good assessment. I make up for my sense of humor. I make up with it for my sense of humor. Again, dude, you're not uh, dis disgusting looking. So a little more self-confidence, please. I'm 22 working in construction industry. Decided school just wasn't for me. Went the construction route. Started as a roof tech and I worked my way up now to roof salesman making pretty good money for my age. This is not why I'm writing you and as you're probably assuming, yeah, this is about a girl. I started talking to a girl about a month and a half ago. Let's call her Paige. We've known each other for a while through mutual friends as I dated one of her good friends two years ago just for a summer. Some of you may think that's an alarm. This is me talking here now. Some of you may say, oh, well, if he likes her, but dated one of her friends. We're talking early 20s here. This is very normal. Everybody dates everybody back then. All right. So I don't think that that's an issue, although maybe it is. All right. Our friend group has stayed somewhat close over the last two years. So we've always been kind of friends. So we've been talking for the last month. This is our guy here in Paige. Uh, last month and a half, hanging a few times a week, went on a couple dates and text and FaceTime every day. Over the last couple of weeks, I'm starting to get uh, feelings for her. We have a lot of things in common. We're getting along super well. We have a great time together. And every time we hang out, here's the problem. After the first date, she told me she wasn't having romantic feelings for me, but said she likes me a lot and wants to see where this goes. Hmm. Fast forward a week ago, one of her friends asked me if I want to go on the trip with their friend group to San Diego where they got an Airbnb. Of course, they said yes for the main purpose, obviously, to hang out with Paige. We had a great time on the trip, and now here's the problem again. We talked at the end of the trip about how I'm feeling and how she's feeling. I told her that I'm starting to really get feelings for her and that I liked her a lot. She told me she really likes me and that I'm a great guy and that I've treated her better than any other guy has, but she still doesn't have those romantic feelings for me yet. She said she still wants to talk, hang out, stay close. We even have a couple more trips planned for us in the next couple months. I really like this girl, and she's one of the best girls I've met and I've talked to. What should I do, Ryan? Do I keep talking to her or hope she catches feelings for me one day, or I just cut it off now so I don't get stuck with this one girl and just move on? Kyle, Ryan, please help. Thank you, guys. Okay. Um, if she doesn't like you, there, there's there's like anything. There's a couple different routes here. but um. It's clear she doesn't like you that way, okay? So she she hasn't, you haven't crossed out of the friend zone into the hangout zone despite you telling her multiple times that this is how you feel, all right? So eventually you're going to be like a waste of time. Now, I, speaking of Westbrook, those of you out there that would just keep grinding away, <laughs> getting shots up as much as possible and just overwhelming the person where they, they finally just like, fine, I'll date you. Like it does happen. I could never do that. The second I don't think somebody's interested, I'm like, all right, fine, whatever. Um, you grinders out there, I respect you. I don't know how you do it. So you could go that way, but I'm not going to tell you to do that. What you do have here, though, is something that all of us need um, for, for the men out there. When, whenever guys are like, hey, you know, I'm having a hard time, you need to find an ally. And if you have a female ally that you're not pursuing and she has friends, that is the most valuable thing you can have in the dating world. If you have someone on the inside talking you up to her friends, it's incredible. You skip 
years of hard, hard. <laughs> like <laughs> it's if you can find yourself a good friend who has a lot of female friends and you don't pursue her, you know, you keep that in the friend zone and then she's talking you up to everybody else. That is like a superpower. All right. And you seem to have that. If her friend is inviting you to the house in San Diego, you have to either get the straight information from the friend or have the friend talk you up. But clearly the friend talking you up doesn't matter. It's not going to change this person's mind. So what I would say to Paige is, hey, you know how I feel. I'm not going to waste any time. FaceTiming, texting all the time. I love talking to you. I look forward to it every day. It's going to suck not seeing those texts pop up and getting that feeling. But I'm not doing this because honestly, that'll probably be the only way that you get her is by completely cutting it off. So she knows she has you now and you're going to treat her like the fact she's like, hey, you treat me better than everybody, but I don't like you that way. Um, you have given her this version of you that she has rejected. So now you have to go cool guy mode because unfortunately so many of us are wired to want the things that we can't have and she knows she can have you so now she doesn't care so your best bet of ever getting to date her and i'm not even saying that this is going to work but it'll likely you will increase your chances by shutting it down and starting to ignore her because it seems like she likes the attention and i wish it weren't this fucked up but you're all 22 and it doesn't exactly go away but your peak stupid dating rules phase and i would tell you that if you're really determined to date her, you probably have to ignore her. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You got to tell her you're busy or something. Yeah, you don't have to be a jerk about it. You know, like, oh, sorry. You know, text, let two two days go by. Oh, totally missed this. Sorry. My bad. We had a roofing job. And by the way, I'm not going to give it away, but where this guy is located, you should not have any problem running into girls. At 22, especially if you're as good of a roof tech as you claim you are. Let's do one more. Oh, this is a good one. I like this one. All right. Our guy checking in. First time, long time. Late 20s and working a relatively high paying career for my age. Think finance, law. I hope he's not with a hedge fund. Wall Street. Uh, in New York City. I grew up and went to college in Boston and originally thought that leaving for New York City would be great for my career development savings. This part of the email blew my mind. You thought it'd be better for your savings to live in New York City? <laughs> this guy must be doing well. Um, unless, you know, wherever he was in Boston, maybe he thought an apartment in Manhattan was cheaper than buying a nice house in a nice neighborhood in Boston. I would tell you Boston isn't exactly cheap by any means, but I don't know that. I don't know. Maybe some of the new numbers there's no I, jokes I about Boston apartments, though. The joke is the New York City apartments. That's yeah. the size of a bathroom. Look, downtown Boston is is really, really expensive. But if you were ever saying, like, savings, New York City would not be the first person. I would, like, that would not be the first thing I thought of. Maybe he has something specific going on that he's not filling us in on here. So, all right. Um, he says in New York City, honestly, it has been uh, great. I've been given great career opportunities. And while I'm not super passionate about the job, I at least feel a weird sense of satisfaction of, of being good at it. All that being said, over the past six months, I've been able to work remotely from Boston between my parents' place and my friend's apartments. It's been a total blast. It's like having my cake and eating it too. I've been able to see great lifelong and college friends while my, um, maintaining my career trajectory. Admittedly, I have a sense of guilt, regret from missing out on some of the great times I could have been having with this group over the past seven years while I was uh, instead in New York city focus on my career. So, all right. 
So he's kind of having that post-college regret. It is amazing when you have a really great group of friends from college, a bunch of you all live in the same area, and you keep riding out those weekends. It's always funny, too, because I remember like going to New York City to visit guys and be like, all right, what's the plan tonight? Be like, oh, we went on on Friday. I'm like, you don't go out on Saturday? I'm like, no, we don't. You know, we're on we're on the come up. We got to stay in. I was like, oh, wow, these guys are really growing up. But it was I was always very jealous of that because, look, I decided early on I don't care about anything career, career, career. And I do regret some of that stuff. I regret, you know, it would have been really fun to have had a group of friends every weekend to be like, hey, what's the plan? What's the plan this Friday? Um, in my younger years, now granted, I, most of the time I would have been like, oh, I have to watch a game, but I, I hear exactly what you're saying. And here you are thinking, okay, you know, it's, I'm still pretty young. It's late twenties. So, all right. So as my office in New York has said that it's reopening after president's day, two to three weeks from writing this, I can't say I have mixed feelings about going back. I just flat out don't want to, he doesn't want to go back. I feel like I've woken up from a seven year fog of slogging to work while showing my personal life. By, excuse me, while shoving my personal life to the side, I thought hard about taking a pay cut or just flat out quitting and moving back to Boston while we're still in our late 20s and my parents are healthy and active. Is this a ridiculous way to think? I can't help but imagine being 40 and still living in New York City with a good amount of savings, but no great memories. Thanks. He also want to know who's better to grab a beer with, Simmons or Cowherd? That one's actually close. There's, there's no... Um, there's no definitive one there. They're both, they're both fun in a different way. So, I mean, I've probably gotten together Cowherd more socially than Bill because I, you know, live near Cowherd. Okay. Uh, this is, this is a, and not a unique dilemma. And, you know, if you were to say on the surface, I miss my friends, I'm quitting my really great job in New York city so that now I can be near my buddies. That does sound stupid on the surface. Now I'd imagine if you're this good as you say you are, in whatever career path you're on, you should be able to get a job somewhere else and do this. But there are moment ideas and then there are kind of long-term ideas. And those moment ideas can be really intoxicating. Like when I finally knew I was going to leave Connecticut, and I knew I was leaving for a little while. So I was always like thinking about different things. I kicked the tires on moving to Denver only for friends. I know that sounds stupid. And I knew I wasn't really going to because I love the water and I you know, the other stuff that I was trying to pursue, I had to be in Los Angeles for it. Um, knowing what I knew now, I could probably have lived in Denver for a year, then gotten to LA a year later, because work-wise, none of it really matters. If you're doing the work, you're doing the work. The meetings are whatever, and now meetings are all over Zoom anyway. So, but you don't know any of this stuff. So I'm afraid that you're being a little tempted by how great this run has been because you haven't had it. So you have more appreciation for this friendship and catching up and feeling like you missed out on all these times because you were away from it, where this is just life for those other guys. So, you know, I always kind of joke like, all right, I moved to Denver. Now what? Hey, sorry, I can't hang out with you today. I have too many friends. You know, that wasn't really going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> like I wasn't, I wasn't going to be able to show up to Tim's house, like, hey, what what are you guys doing? You want to play NHL 94 downstairs? Like, you know, so you can create a version in your head of what your life is going to be like if you stay in Boston full time. Word. That may not be true. Now, maybe it is. I mean, maybe you've had these months there and you're like, no, it would be like this. And I like being near my family. Oh, I'll still sometimes have guilt where I'll think, did you have to move all the way across the country? Well, I did. I had to. But you know, and I'll think about like my younger brother and, and I'll like, maybe you should have just, you know, stayed in New England for another year. And it's like, well, it wouldn't really have changed anything. So here's what I would say. 
don't do this with no plan. Okay. Don't just flat out quit. What you should have been doing this whole time is figuring out if there was, because it sounds like you actually are going to be happier in Boston. So that's important. And if you're this good, you're probably going to figure out another path. I just don't ever like doing any of these drastic things unless you've been working behind the scenes and putting together some kind of plan. You know, but it's great. I mean, it's it's great to have friends after college. You know, a lot of us don't always get that chance or have that neighborhood where everybody gets along and you feel like there's at least that opportunity once every few months to get out, you know, and, and feel kind of young again. But I don't like hey, this has been awesome hanging out with college buddies because I'm in that, you know, I think you miss college like the most late 20s, early 30s, maybe early 30s is pathetic, but uh, 45 is really pathetic. But late 20s where you're like, oh, wait, like that was incredible. And now guys are starting to have kids and now everything is going to be upended. And now all these things are going to be different. But don't let these last few months convince you to make a very, not bad, not a bad decision, an unprepared decision. So that's how I would look at it. And even if you have to go back to New York City in a couple of weeks when things open back up, maybe you'll be removed and be like, hey, you know what? Actually, maybe this isn't so bad. Or maybe you'll miss it so much that the money and the job just won't matter. Because sometimes we have those decisions facing us. And you go, you know, what? I don't care about any of that stuff. I just want to be happier. And I was happier back in Boston. So there's a bunch of different ways you could go with this. I just would like a little bit more prep from you on a career transition here, especially at a really tough time right now. But if you're as good as you say you are, then there should be opportunities in Boston for you. Okay, that's the uh, podcast. We have Teddy Bruschi later this week. Uh, Aaron Donald is going to join us as well. And we've got a few other things planned. So it's going to be a great week leading up to the Super Bowl. Make sure you check out all the coverage on ringer.com, Ringer Podcast, and Spotify. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Talk to you Wednesday. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com.